Why, hello there, and welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with PureAndSimpleBible.com, and I'm so thankful to have another opportunity to record a Bible conversation for your benefit and study. This week, I've got Brother Nathan Batty on the program. He joins me via Zencaster from his home up in Indianapolis, and we have a conversation from the book of Acts, chapter 12. It's called Deja Vu in Acts 12. And what I like about this Bible study, and, and what happens so often is the Bible, is that patterns are made relevant and they come alive. And Nathan does a great job of, of showing in Acts chapter 12 some of these cyclical patterns where you start with the character and then they're going to come back later in the story. And it's deja vu all over again, as one person says, and I won't reveal that till he does in the study later on. So I invite you to have your Bible handy. Keep it open at Acts 12. Keep a notebook or notepad nearby. You're going to want to take some notes from this one. So without further ado, let's jump into this Bible conversation with Brother Nathan Batty called Deja Vu in Acts 12. For those who maybe don't know you, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, so I'm Nathan Batty. I am Jonathan's cousin. And... Oh, I've been working with the congregation here in Indianapolis, Indiana, for about four years now. I think it'll be four years next month. I've been preaching for 15 years now, full-time. And you're a, you're a husband and father. You've got three three kids. Three uh, kids. One, one brand new. That's right. Just had a baby back in the middle of November, trying to get adjusted to the three-child life. Mm -hmm. uh, you've, you've gone from man-to-man -man coverage to the zone defense, as we commonly joke. Right. Um, you've done some traveling. You've been out of the country. You've, you're a, an international preacher as well, right? You spent time in Russia and where else? So I lived in Russia for a couple of years. I've been to the Philippines, been to Mexico, been to Australia, been to Malawi, Africa um, on church work. I've traveled a few other places on non-church related work, but um, that's, that's where I've spent the bulk of my time out of the country. haven't traveled much for mission work in about Oh, I don't know, six or seven years. Yeah. Okay. And you, uh, you're also an author. You've got at, at least one book out. Do you have more than one? Just one book at this moment. And it's on the covenant, right? The what's Concept, the name of it? Uh, covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. Yeah. It's, I wrote it during the pandemic last year, and it addresses some questions that arose about some felt like some important passages, and so. Uh, wrote a book there to kind of to respond to that and also to kind of keep it in print for a long time. Articles mm. seem to kind of come and go, but a book has a little bit of permanency to it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you're a connoisseur of books. You've got, uh, I always turn to you whenever I'm, I'm needing something specific and you'll typically have it where you can sell it to me uh, cheaper than I can even find it on Amazon. So... How many how many books do you have in your library? You think? I don't know. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he told me he had twenty five thousand volumes in his library. And Savannah asked me, she says, "Is that about what you have?" And I said, "No, not even close." I, <laughs> I think if you included all my inventory and my personal books, we may be around five thousand, six thousand, something like that. Oh, okay. Uh, I I pared down 
a bit. Now, looking at my office, you wouldn't know that, but things are kind of a bit of a mess around here right now. And uh, you have a podcast that, as we said before we started recording, uh, hasn't been updated in a little bit. You may be taking it in a different direction, but will you tell me a little bit about your podcast and about your website as well? Sure. So I did a podcast for uh, about a year and a half called the Been There, Read That podcast, where I dealt primarily with book reviews and interviewing uh, various preachers about subjects that they had a strong interest in, a strong background in. And I've done that for a while, and I kind of put a pause on it last summer, and I've, I've posted a few things, just more or less sermon material, but what I'm probably going to do in the future with it is I like to do sermon series, whether it's teaching through a book or addressing a certain topic, mm-hmm. developing it over like five or six sermons. And what I'm going to do in the near future is uh, kind of record batches, if you will, of sermons on topic. Like I'm, I'm doing a series right now. I'm teaching through on uh, the resurrection perspective and how the resurrection is meant to change how we view scripture. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be about three or four sermons related to that. I'll post those and then um, I'm going to con- kind of continue on with the same topic of the resurrection, but in a different direction, address the concept of the resurrection, how it was taught in the Old Testament, and then brought to its fullness in the New Testament. Okay, very good. And you have a website, The Christian Researcher, right? ChristianResearcher.com. That's where I've posted a lot of articles in the past. It's where you can find some of my bookstore. Um, I've got away from listing used books on there because it's very time-consuming to do that. So I try to put on brand new books or books that are in print that I can keep in supply so I don't have to update it on a daily basis type deal. Good. Well, I will try to put a link to, I have to remind myself to do it because I'll, I'll boast that I'll put links to your (laughs) website and podcast, et cetera, in my show notes. And then I don't do it. And people email me and say, Hey, where are those links? So I hope whenever I listen to this, as I edit it, that I will take time to do that. You, you just mentioned earlier that you're doing a series on resurrection and the the Bible study that you sent me that you thought would be good for having a discussion about was called Deja Vu, The Resurrection of Peter. Is it part of that series? Not specifically. I, I did this study about three years ago, but it's always kind of been in the back of my mind and has changed some of how I, I look at the book of Acts in particular. Um that subtitle, The Resurrection of Peter, is a little bit of the punchline. For a long time, I didn't know what to call the sermon. Oh, okay. And okay. I finally came up with the title, Deja Vu, but it'll kind of be explained as we go along through the study. But it is part of what sparked my current studies, but isn't necessarily connected directly. Okay. And you you, you begin, um, by the way, I really like the way that you write your sermon notes. I It almost looks like it's a... Uh, a script, if that makes sense. Like, a like whenever I look at, if I ever, you know, was in the movies or something and you look at those scripts, you're, the, the text on your sermon notes is very easy to follow. Um, you begin with this major point about the focus of the book of Acts. And maybe could you take a moment to explain that to our listeners, uh, especially those who aren't very familiar with the book of Acts uh, and, and how important it is to see that big picture uh, or else you'll, you'll, you'll kind of miss things as you go through the book. Sure. So 
I believe basically we should call the book of Acts the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Um, a lot of times it's called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I think the focal point of what's going on in the book is showing that Christ reigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had this concept of the build-up to the kingdom in the book of Luke, the first part of this two-part series, and now you're seeing him enthroned. And repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, there's this emphasis on Jesus acting through the apostles, his official ambassadors. And they're constantly pointing back to the fact that he reigns. That's the central point of their contention, whether that's in establishing the concept of the resurrection or uh, the concept of the kingdom language that they use repeatedly. And it it begins right there in Acts 1. they they kind of have a this seems like a misconception about his his reign in chapter one verse six where they question, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh, what what were they asking about, and and what did he have to do to kind of set things right? Okay, so I think they were actually asking the right question, and they were asking a question about timing. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The concept of the restoration of Israel bookends the Gospel of Luke in chapters 1 and 2, and then in chapter 24. In chapter 24 in the Emmaus Road, the two disciples say, one of the things they said was, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem or restore Israel. And they're disappointed, and Jesus is upset with them. He says, oh, you foolish hearts and minds, slow to understand all that the prophets wrote. Beginning at this point, he talked to them all things concerning himself in Moses and the prophets. Mm. And so, of necessity, the concept of the restoration of Israel was included in that. He teaches them for 40 days about the kingdom, specifically stated Acts chapter 1, I think it's verse 2 and 3. And so, when they're asking this question about the restoration of Israel, this is the concept that the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel had talked about the restoration of Israel. They're asking about the timing. Is it going to happen right now? And his response is about timing. He says, it's not for you to know the times. And I believe the reason for that is because to answer a question about the timing of the restoration of Israel would include both the beginning and the consummation. Mm -hmm. He's not going to talk about the consummation time right now, but he responds to them and says, you know, go to Jerusalem and wait till you've received the sign. And so it is going to start, but he's not going to, to reveal the consummation. We're in the already but not yet concept of the kingdom. Okay. And he he tells them, it kind of outlines uh, Jesus' reign in in different geographical areas, right? You've, you've got it mentioned in his reply that uh, in Acts 1, verse 7 and 8, it's going to start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and then the end of the uh, ends of the earth. So, Maybe take us through that verse and kind of what it's setting up. So this is emphasizing how the reign of Christ is going to proceed throughout the whole world. This is kind of like how the king is going to conquer the world, if you will. And he has a strategic battle plan that it starts in Jerusalem. That's where the book of Acts focuses primarily at the beginning. Then it moves into Judea to Samaria, and then he goes for world domination. Mm. He's breaking out of 
the area of Palestine, which is where Israel had been confined in the past, and now it's going to worldwide domination. And uh, it seems like th- this concept of uh, maybe being in the in the name of Jesus, uh, it's going to happen several times there at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts 3, Acts 4. What's the pattern that I should be getting as a Bible student by seeing this uh, in the name of Jesus, do this, do that, do this, do that? Yeah, so you think about um, somebody comes and knocks on your door and they say, open up in the name of the law. So by right. the authority of the law, the law has invested me with this power, and I have the right to demand this of you. So in Jesus' day, they would say in the, the name of Rome or in the name of the temple priests or the temple cult. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is emphasizing, the disciples are emphasizing, we're doing everything in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus reigns as king, and we mm-hmm. are coming demanding that you submit yourself to the reign of Christ. So mm-hmm. every time you see that in the name of the Lord, and it is repeated a lot as something to pay attention to in the book of Acts, it is emphasizing that Jesus reigns right now, and you have to make a decision. Will you submit to his reign, or will you be conquered? Uh, now, when, when I think of the name, and what you just said makes perfect sense, uh, one thing that, that often... Uh, we have a little bit of a different maybe understanding on is humor because you you have a, something that you call a hilarious note and then you talk about them being beaten in his name and I'm thinking, what's so humorous about this? So <laughs> will you take a moment and maybe let me in on the joke because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on the outside. <laughs> sure. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. So this is a little bit of a buildup. In chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are taken before the Sanhedrin. They're going to be interviewed. They're going to be threatened here in chapter 4. And these people are basically admitting, you know, about, I don't know, 45, 50 days ago, we killed Jesus, and now it's like we have two of him on our hands. It's, it's <laughs> right. kind of like stamping on an anthill. Every time you stamp, there's more ants that come out. Yeah. And this is going to be built up in chapter five. Now, it's not going to be just Peter and John. It's going to be the 12 as well, the whole 12. Mm. Um, the other thing is they recognize these are basically dumb Galileans. They don't have PhDs. They're not language experts. They haven't been to the seminary, so to speak. These are just untrained men like Jesus. And yet, even though they've killed Christ, now they have him doubled. Mm. I I just find that quite comical. And they, they determine, well, we'll try the same thing we did with Christ. Let's beat him. So they beat him and these men just walk away rejoicing. They're thankful that they got beaten and they come back and there's 12 of them next time. Mm. I, just, I just find that kind of humorous. Yeah. Yeah. You have a weird sense of humor, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, there's there's certainly, it's perplexing. Because, uh, yeah, we, we see them almost like two separate, completely separate historical episodes that these these people would have been the same ones who had ultimately killed Jesus, who are dumbfounded, not, you know, it's less than two months that they're dumbfounded that these two uneducated fishermen uh, 
are causing the same problems. And and I like how you've 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 helped me bring it together instead of making the gospels and the book of acts two very different things. It's re- it really should be seen as one, right? Correct. I I call it a part one and a part two. Okay. And so then um you know we're we're trying very quickly to get to acts 12, but you're taking time to set the scene so to speak and uh you know when Jesus said that you'll you'll you know, this instruction for conquering the world will begin in Jerusalem, that God's going to reign in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, Samaria, then the end of the earth. We're approaching the end of the book of Acts of what's happening in Jerusalem, that first, I guess, area to reign. And yet the reign, it looks different. They're they're being beaten, and it it ends with... uh, Stephen in Acts seven. What what happens there to maybe close the curtain on this Jerusalem scene? So as Stephen is being stoned to death, you have this ironic scene where he gets to see into heaven itself, and there is Jesus standing at God's right hand, paying him the ultimate honor, and he is able to witness to these men as they kill him that I see Jesus. And then he prays and asks that God would forgive them, which when you read that, you are meant to hear Christ dying on the cross, uttering the same words. And so the disciple is acting as the master, and he is witnessing that Christ indeed reigns. And so you have this, from an earthly perspective, this looks like defeat, which is the same thing it looked like when Christ died on the cross. But from the divine perspective, it's very clear to Stephen, and it should be clear to us, that Christ is the one ultimately in control. That doesn't mean that we won't suffer persecution. In fact, it means we probably will suffer persecution. For if the master suffered, should not we? And yet, Christ does reign. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It goes forth, and each time in the book of Acts you have persecution breaking out, you also have a spreading of the kingdom. The kingdom goes forth, aided by persecution. You'd think, from an earthly standpoint, don't give us persecution. We don't want this persecution. And yet, it was in the midst of persecution that the church grew. It's like stamping on the anthill. Yeah, I, you know, I was, I was going to try to find a way to transition to the next point, but you just did it for me. Um, the The Jerusalem scene ends with persecution, but that persecution inspires the next section, which is going to Judea and Samaria when they flee persecution. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the, the next few chapters, Acts chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, uh, it, it kind of follows a similar narrative of the church and spreads and then persecution follows. Is that right? Yes, sir. And then okay. when you get to chapter 12, this is kind of like a wrap up of the Jerusalem scene. And Jerusalem's going to be out of the picture for the most part until we get back to chapter 15 where you have the kind of like the council going on. And then uh-huh. when Paul later returns to Jerusalem and he has the, the big controversy in the synagogue, he provokes by discussion of the resurrection. The marquee on, on the podcast will be about Acts 12 and, and we've just now got to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so hopefully, you know, as, as people have been patient listening to this, They've taken some time to meditate with us on this pattern of events going from Jerusalem to uh, Judea, Samaria, and now to the this 
uh, next point of going towards the ends of the world. And that's where Paul's going to take the gospel and others are going to take the gospel, Peter as well, uh, to the Gentiles. But there's something uh, in Acts 12 that's very special. And I like how your study is organized. So I don't want to reveal too much. What would you like to say to begin as we jump into Acts chapter 12? So two things, really. One, especially when we're talking about narrative material, whether we're talking about books in the Old Testament, the Gospels, or the Book of Acts, you have to deal with the narrative as a whole. And so you have to pay attention to where individual scenes begin and end and how that scene fits into the overall arching narrative of the book. Whenever we're talking about the book of Acts, it's part two of a two-part series. So how does Acts fit up with Luke? How Mm -hmm. does Luke fit up with the Gospels? How do the Gospels fit up with the Bible? You have to keep the whole narrative context. And what we do sometimes is we'll come to like an Acts 12, we'll read it in isolation from everything that came before, and then we'll ask the question, well, what's going on here? Which we're at a disadvantage to understand because we're not looking at the context. And so we have to keep the wider context in mind and then realize this is where the scene really transitions away from Jerusalem. And what is the purpose or the point that's going on in this passage? And we have to pay attention to how the story is told to understand the impact that the story is meant to give us. You cannot separate how the story is told from what the story tells. Okay, let me let me say that again just for my own processing. You can't separate what this what is told from what the story tells. Is that what you said? You can't separate what the story tells from how the story Oh, tells. from how the story tells yes. it. So and you're suggesting that I shouldn't just read through this Acts twelve, you know, uh in a couple minutes thinking that it's just a you know, there's one thing that's going on here. Correct. There are are about four different layers that are taking place within this story, and the story is structured very carefully in a parallel fashion. We'll unpack that more in a minute, but one of the things that Bible writers do a lot in narratives is that they carefully craft their story, and whenever you realize how they've told it, how they've told it lends toward what the story means. Maybe I'm going to put you on the spot with the question uh, about why would they do it this way? Why not just tell us a simple narrative? Why would they take time to craft layers? Seems like uh, if if I'm not familiar with this method, I might lose some things. So why not make it easy for everyone to understand? Sure. So there's two things. On one hand, there is a surface level understanding. Anybody can pick up Acts 12 and can get some good basic points out of it. But when we recognize the careful structure of the passage, the structure is self-interpreting, and it helps give us some safeguards and parameters to make sure we're getting the points, and we might even argue the main point. And until I, I recognize that, I'll just admit I didn't fully understand why is this story here. It's interesting. It has some interesting concepts here, but what all is being given to us in the packaging, so to speak? Okay. 
Okay. Well, you, you in your study suggest that there are four layers to the story. Do you, do you reveal what they are or do you just take them one at a time? How do you kind of let your audience know whenever you present this? How, how do you take them through it? So I, I basically write out the structure of the passage on the board. Uh, writing it out is very helpful to show. This is what's called a chiastic structure. Uh, the, another technical term for that is inverted parallelism. That's just a fancy way of saying that the story is told in parallel fashion. So in other words, the story begins and ends at the same place. It begins with Herod persecuting the church, and the story ends focusing on Herod once again as he is judged. Mm. So as it begins, mm -hmm. you're kind of asking the question, who reigns? Is it Jesus or is it Herod? Yeah. And you get the answer to the question at the end of the story when Herod is killed. And clearly, yeah. Christ is the one who reigns. Yeah. So it moves from Herod to prison, uh, Peter in prison. And then later on, it comes around and talks about the escape from prison as it was investigated uh, by the, the Jewish temple cult. And so we need to consider the escape itself in parallel with the investigation of that escape. Okay. Right in the center of the story that has no parallel part is Peter's appearance to the disciples who are hiding behind locked doors, praying on his behalf. The fact that it has no parallel part in the story tells you this is a major emphasis. This is where everything is driving. And after you've reached this kind of climactic moment, you leave the scene in the same way in which you came. In other words, we go from Peter's appearance to the disciples to the prison investigation back to Herod. It's kind of like climbing up a mountain, reaching the, the crest of the peak of the mountain, and then traveling back down in the same way in which you came. I like that visual. That makes sense to me. And then you have a, a conclusion as well. Right. Uh, so verses 24 and 25 are a little summation statement about how this scene impacted the church. And it's, it's amazing. There's something about this story that caused revival and tremendous growth within the early church. And that's mm. the part that always puzzled me is, okay, this is a really unique story. It's interesting. God's faithfully delivers Peter. But how did this have a tremendous impact on the church at large and can cause almost like a second Pentecost to break out? What's going wow. on here? Wow. Okay. Well, that... You, do you mind if I put this uh, snapshot with your podcast on my website? I hate to maybe take the thrill out of when you preach this at places, but um, for our listeners, I think maybe to see your Roman numerals, A, B, C, B, A, yes. and uh, will we'll be very good for visual learners. So I might try to copy and paste that and uh, have it for anybody that wants to go to PSB and find this podcast and look at it there. So for the, the remainder of your study then, so now you've kind of laid out your your game plan. You, you've discussed this main point. It's now time to take it layer by layer. And uh, just for reminder's sake, I'll tell our listeners, we've got the Herod layer and, or story, uh, the prison escape of Peter, that layer. Uh, the third layer would be Peter appearing to his brethren. And then that final uh the the growth of the church layer 
on the end. And so you take these one by one and, and kind of break them down. So why don't you begin with that first one, the layer number one, which is about Herod, and he kind of opens and closes uh, chapter 12. So uh, help us understand his part in, in Acts 12. Okay. So Herod does what has not been done yet in the book of Acts. The, up to this point, the apostles, the, the 12, have been kind of the untouchables. You can touch Stephen and you can kill him, and the, a lot of the disciples will flee Jerusalem, but the 12 stick around. Mm -hmm. And the, the temple cult did not have the guts, if you will, to kill one of the apostles. They were kind of leery and scared of them. Maybe that's because of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know. But they don't touch the 12. And yet Herod now kills James, the brother of John, with a sword. Mm -hmm. And then he takes Peter, the leader, and he imprisons him, intending to execute him after the Passover is over. So we're told this happens during Passover, and they're wanting to wait until after Passover to kill Peter, which is what I would call an echo of Exodus. In other words, when you read this, you're meant to hear the story of Exodus. This is told within a setting of the Passover, which is really important. So you're you're suggesting, and maybe because we don't have some cultural heritage, etc., there would be readers uh, and people who heard this account who would automatically think, "Oh, that's that's like Exodus." But maybe if we're a little bit more removed from it, we're not going to make that connection uh, quite as quickly. So, what what are what am I missing from Exodus that you're saying is connecting here in X twelve? Okay, so this is developed a little bit as we go along, but. Basically, the story is presenting Pharaoh, uh, Herod in a Pharaoh-like state. And it's making okay. a parallel between Herod and Pharaoh. For instance, the Bible says here in Acts 12 that he stretched out his hand to kill James, the brother of John, mm. and to seize Peter. And so this is a concept that people would have recognized as Pharaoh. Pharaoh was known as the strong-armed one. He was the one who raises his arm constantly against Israel. And he's in the, the Pharaoh Exodus scene, Pharaoh is acting as if he is God and can rule over Israel and do to them whatever he wants. And in this scene, Herod is trying to show that he can rule over the children of God as God, and he can snatch the 12 of the rep of, you know the representative of the 12 tribes of spiritual Israel, and he can dominate over them as well, and he can do with them as he pleases. Okay. And so you have to, uh, I think within the text itself, whether we have the whole history in our culture or not, the text itself is giving us clues, pointing out it's Passover time, pointing out he's stretching out his hand, and there will be some other clues as we go along. Okay. And and in addition to maybe the the Exodus connection. Um, one of the things that you you also talk about with James, you know, James being the one who passes away whenever he's killed, um, is that it's a it's a partial fulfillment of Jesus' words. Uh, what what happened there and and what did Jesus say? In Luke 21, and I'll just read this passage beginning in verse 12. But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prison. Will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, sell it on your hearts, 
not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience, possess your souls. Now there's some some unique features here. First of all, he's saying you will be persecuted for my name's sake. And we've already noted that in the name of the Lord is a dominant recurring theme in the book of Acts. So they are being persecuted because they are representatives of Christ. Mm. This is the first occasion where an apostle, which is who Jesus was speaking to on this occasion, the first occasion where an apostle is killed as he predicted that they would. The irony here is he says, not a hair of your head will be lost. And you think, well, okay, not a hair, but his head was lost. So how do we reconcile that? And again, this goes back to there's the earthly perspective and then there's the heavenly perspective. Herod can kill the man, but he cannot conquer the king who holds all power in his hands. Right, right. Okay. And so then maybe I'm getting ahead of you, but is this where you would transition to say that the question that's being asked is who reigns and now it's being answered? Yes. Who reigns? Is it Herod, the Pharaoh-like figure, or is it Christ, who is God? And the answer to that question is given at the end of the scene when you go down to verses 20 through verse 23. On that occasion, Herod comes out and he's arrayed in this great sparkly apparel. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that he was wearing this garment that was made out of spun or weaved silver. Hmm. And as he stood there in the sunlight, this, the sun is reflecting off of his garment, and he's hard to look at. And these people cry out, and they say, Behold the voice of a god and not of a man. Basically, they're saying, This is like when we saw the Shekinah glory of God, that glory that was veiled in a cloud in the Old Testament. And they are, they're making that analogy from the wilderness, and they're saying, uh, Herod here is speaking as if he is God. Now, and why why, why does he die instead of them? They're the ones that say it. Because he's puffed up. He accepts that and begins thinking of himself as God, which is what he's been doing throughout the whole story all along. Uh, that makes sense. And so God makes an emphatic point that Herod does not, in fact, reign. Herod is not God. And in the way that he executes Herod, it gives us a look into the eternal state of Herod. Not only does Herod die in this life, but he will suffer eternally. And what I'm saying there is in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42, the Bible says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mm -hmm. Herod mm -hmm. is eaten with worms. And that's Oof. a very specific type of death. It's pretty gr gruesome. I believe the reason he dies in that manner is to teach kind of a, a foreshadowing of his eternal state. He is not God. And in fact, he will be punished forever in hell, eaten by worms as he was eaten in this life. And so you're, 
study and the way that you've you've outlined this, uh, we're not following it chronologically. We've we, we've read a few verses at the beginning, and now we've read a few verses at the end, but we've we've followed the layer yes. chronologically. Yes. And we're we've asked the question, "Who is reigning?" And the answer is Jesus, and that that's uh, what you brought out at the very beginning of the study is we, we should be seeing across the whole book of Acts that Jesus is reigning, yes. and this is kind of following that narrative. Is that right? Yes. This this whole scene, I would say, is bookended by this overarching question, who reigns? Mm-hmm. That's raised in the beginning of the scene. It's raised at the conclusion of the scene, and that same question also bookends the whole book itself, if you will. Okay. And uh, you have this one little thing, I think it'd be really good for uh, our listeners to hear it, about this final connection between Pharaoh and Herod. Yes. So I I just put there, just as Pharaoh met his ruin because of a failure to give God glory, so does Herod. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of puts the cherry on top, if you will. There is more Passover type of imagery that's contained. But that point, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not give in regardless of the signs and wonders that God had performed. And he follows it through to the very end and is drowned in the sea. And now Herod, who is puffing himself up, acting in the same way as God, persecuting God's people, is overthrown because he failed to give God the glory that was due him. Mm-hmm. Mm. I like that. I like that. Now, uh, let's move into the second layer. So we've, we've had this Herodian layer to bookend what's happened to Peter. And the second layer is Peter's prison saga. So let's, uh, I guess we're going in re- or rewind for a bit. So Herod, before his death scene is when this one starts, right? Right. So he seizes Peter, he throws him in prison, and now we're left anticipating what will happen. Will he kill Peter like he is intending to do, or will Peter be delivered? A cliffhanger indeed. Will Peter be put to death, or will he be rescued? We're going to have to wait till next week to hear the exciting second part of this Bible study conversation, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. This first week, we've focused on setting the scene as well as going through this first layer on Herod, and uh, I really like the way that Nathan has helped break this chapter down. In my Bible, I've taken some time in the margins to write out this outline. You can go to the website, and you can find a... uh, a screenshot of the outline, and you can do the same in your Bible if you'd like to. And uh, so I want to invite you to come back next week to hear the second half of this and to get a bigger picture of Acts chapter 12. I think it's fantastic, and I commend Nathan for his study, and I hope we all will glean lessons from it. So until next week, please go to the website, pureandsimplebible.com. Look at all the resources that are there for you to use and download absolutely free. And always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon.
Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, his rules and